It's a reassuring reality to know that our life is in the omnipotent hands of our Lord as life comes and in all kinds of ways uh, that can uh, discourage us, can create difficulties, but we know where we are with respect to him, and that's a comfort. If you'll open your copy of the scripture, Philippians chapter 3, Philippians chapter 3, we will uh, begin in verse 12 of this passage, penned by the Apostle Paul, Philippians chapter 3. Not that I have already obtained it, or have already become perfect, but I press on, so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Underscore that in your mind. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude, and if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained, pursuing the ultimate prize. People pursue many things in life, such as an adventure, a relationship with someone, an education, pleasure, wealth. In the turn of the new year, some people are going to pursue New Year's resolutions. I was told this morning by my wife that the record is that only 10% of the people who make them keep them. People pursue these things because they believe they are of a worthy pursuit. Scripture presents a far higher and more significant quest for followers of Jesus Christ. A quest that has value in this life and value in the life to come. In fact, that text that I repeated in verse 14, Paul calls it the prize. The prize is Christ-likeness. Christian living, then, is a lifelong pursuit of Christ-likeness. If you want to define our life as believers, it is that. We are pursuing Christ. We're pursuing his likeness. We want to look like him increasingly. That's the Christian life. Because of his supreme value and eternal importance, we should go after that prize. There shouldn't be any question about it. We should do it with zeal, with earnestness with eagerness, with enthusiasm, pursuing it. Paul did, as we see in these words that I just read a moment ago. Perhaps you are thinking, well, that's Paul. After all, he is an apostle. He wrote 13 of the new 27 New Testament books. After all, he has been called, quote, the world's most successful Christian. So Paul would naturally Uh, do that because after all look who he was and what he did but Paul's commitment to pursuing the prize is for all Christians verse 15 tells us this I read it a moment ago remember verse 15 let us 
therefore as many as are perfect, and we'll expound on that further. So it includes us all. There are none exempt. Earlier in the epistle, Paul addressed all Christians with respect to the theme of Christ's likeness or sanctification. Those verses are very familiar to any Christian who's been a Christian any time at all, but let us explore them uh, at this moment to refresh our memory and perhaps deeply, more deeply understand that verse 12, so then, Philippians 2, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Paul was in prison, you recall, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Uh, the words work out, one word in the original, it means to produce. I decided I'd parse the Greek verb translated work out. Uh, look at its parts, the parts of the verb to help us understand more fully what work out means. It's a second person plural, meaning all the members of the Philippian church, all the members of Everlasting Life Baptist Church. It's like saying you all or y'all or you guys. It's in the middle voice, meaning we're all responsible. We have a responsibility to work it out ourselves. This is the present tense. It's to be a habitual activity, something we're constantly engaged in, not something we make a resolution for on January 1 and forget about it January 5. It's an imperative, and that's important because it's a command from the Lord. He is fear and trembling. Salvation? What on earth could he mean? One thing he doesn't mean, he wasn't asking them to get salvation because he was writing to Christians. Paul here doesn't mean justification in the initial experience of salvation. That time when we came to faith in Christ, he is not talking about justification. We were justified at that time we came to Christ. We were declared righteous because God had imputed or credited to us, to our spiritual account, Christ's righteousness. But you need to understand justification is foundational for our working out our salvation. If no justification, there cannot be any working out the salvation. What does salvation in this text mean? It means sanctification. Growing in Christ's likeness. Sanctification and Christ's likeness are essentially, in my thinking, I believe I'm right on this, synonymous. The more we're sanctified, the more we're set apart from sin, the, more, the less we sin, the more like Christ we become. And as we assert it, all believers in Christ are responsible to work out their salvation, to grow in holiness, grow in likeness to Christ. That is to be your life as a Christian. Every day when you get up, you're to be thinking, how can I become more like Christ? The conclusion of the day that I come to your mind, how can I be more like Christ? The remainder of the day, how was I more like him? That is to be on our minds. That is to be our preoccupation. How can I be more like Christ in my relationship with my family, with my church members, with those with whom I work? 
How am I like Christ? Am I becoming more like him? Verse 13 says, For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is at work in us. Thank God he is. He's the internal power in us. Producing both the will that we have to pursue Christ-likeness and the power to pull it off. What God commands, he also enables us to do. And notice, it's for his good pleasure. When you and I are working out our salvation, when we're doing what God wants, it pleases him. It brings him pleasure. Our Father in heaven looks down and he sees us living our life, seeking to conform our life more and more by his power to Christ. The Father is pleased. You want to know how to please God? Pursue Christ's likeness. One way you please him. Because his son pleased. Didn't, he? didn't, didn't the Father say, this, behold, this is my beloved son in whom I am what? Well pleased. <laughs> So be like him. And you'll please God the Father. Now Paul's personal experience um, is recounted here. It's of course not for him alone in our text. It's uh, for all who have been born again. His pursuit is to be our pursuit. And it is to be a, here's the first heading, a relentless Pursuit. Verse 12. He had not already obtained, he says, that is the prize. He had not become perfect, that is, he had not reached the goal. He had not accomplished what he intended. The apostle here in his text in verse 12, he used the word perfect in response to a false doctrine called perfectionism that was being circulated in the Philippian church. The false doctrine of perfectionism asserted a second work of grace in which a person is instantaneously made sinless. This, of course, is a lie. No one is made sinless in this life. Paul, at this point, had been a Christian for 30 years. And he had neither obtained the prize of full Christ-likeness, which includes sinlessness. He had not achieved his goal. The great apostle knew his own imperfections. Though a strong and mature Christian, he struggled with indwelling sin, as he recounts in Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 25. Late in his life, his Christian life. He said about himself in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Did you get that? He did not say, I was. The he recognized at that point in his pilgrimage that he still had sin. He still had came up short with respect to divine standard of perfect holiness expressed in divine law. He was not perfect yet. 
But that didn't stop him. He didn't wring his hands and say, after 30 years, uh, this is I haven't achieved it, so I, I think I'm going to just slide on into heaven. Paul had a holy discontent with his spiritual status. You ought to have that, a holy discontent. You ought to not be pleased with the progress you've made in your Christian life. You say, well, I've come quite a ways. I've seen God work in my life. You haven't gotten all the way you need to be. There ought to be a holy discontent. Paul had a holy discontent. He knew his failings. He knew his shortcomings. He knew his sins. And as a matter of fact, he knew them better than most because the holier you get, the more sensitive to your sin you become. You see, when you first become a Christian, you just don't know how wretched you were or are. Because you don't have the experience of walking with the Lord and knowing him and his word being revealed and showing you as a mirror your sinfulness. So you don't know how badly you were off before Christ saved you. But as you mature, as you become more like Christ and you see life in yourself through the word of God, you begin to say, wow, I am a wretch. It's an inverse relationship. It's an unusual one. You would think the holier you become, the less you recognize your sin. No, no, it's just the opposite. Paul knew what he was. He knew he hadn't arrived. It didn't stop him. He says, but I press on. I press on. Diaco. It's the word translated diaco. The verb's tense denotes constant pursuit. It means to run or follow after. Paul likened his pursuit of the prize to a foot race. A foot race requires energy. It requires effort. You can't run the 100 meter dash without expending some energy. He put effort into growing spiritually. Since the verb is in the present tense, he was relentless. That effort was not done in congenial circumstances, however. You need to understand that sometimes we can look at biblical characters like Paul and we think, man, they must have had it easy. The Apostle Paul, no, 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 not if you know the record. Paul was pursuing Christ-likeness in less than favorable circumstances many times in his life. You can read the catalog of 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul, I'll just give you a few. He experienced shipwrecks, fastings, sleeplessness. He's in the deep, the sea, you know. He experienced beatings. He was stoned and outside Lystra and and was left for dead there, I should say. And he had weariness from his toils, his labors, his missionary journeys. People wanted to kill him. He had to get out of town. And one time they had to lure him in a basket to get him out of town because people were going to kill him. And on top of all the things that he experienced, his sufferings, dangers from his countrymen, dangers from others, he experienced his burden for the church. When he wrote these words, 
we're looking at this morning. He was imprisoned in Rome. His first Roman imprisonment. In addition to this book, Philippians, he wrote three other prison epistles, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. He served Christ and Christ's church. And all the while, he chased after Christ's likeness. He wanted to be more like his Lord. More like his Savior. That's what he says in verse 12. So that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Laid hold of to overtake, seize, catch. When did Christ Jesus lay hold of Paul on the road to Damascus? That's when he met the Lord Jesus Christ. Sovereignly, supernaturally, Jesus sees Paul, who was his enemy, and saved him. And Paul is writing here. As John Piper writes, Paul labored to seize Christ as his prize because Christ had seized him. End of quote. Shouldn't that be us? Christ seized you at salvation. You ought to be seeking to seize him. To be like him. That's what Paul wanted to do. Christ had saved Paul and saving him. So Christ saving Paul wasn't just to deliver him from eternal wrath and hell, but that he might be like him. Paul was transformed by that seizure when the Lord Jesus delivered him. His grace, 180 degree turn from proud, self-righteous, Christ-hating, Christian-hating Pharisee to a new creature in Christ with a new heart, new spirit, new disposition, and a new mind that desired holiness. That's what happened to Paul. That's what happens to any Christian, true Christian. Be like the one we once didn't love. One we hated. But now we want to be like him. That, that's true Christianity. A true Christian. You want to be like Jesus Christ. In fact, the whole Trinity is involved in this. Involved in our transformation into the likeness of Christ. We've already seen God the Father in um, Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. But that's not the only time the Father is mentioned. We see it in Romans chapter 8 as well, verse 29. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. For those whom he for new. Pragnosko is the word rendered for new. This is a uh, compound word. The main part of the word is gnosko. Gnosko means to know someone in a personal relationship. Gnosko and its Hebrew equivalent yara 
is used of intimacy between a husband and wife. You recall, yada, the Old Testament, and Adam knew Eve. An intimate relationship. Here in the word prognosco, the compound word, as I mentioned a moment ago, pro, P-R-O, means to love someone before, in the case beforehand, rather. Combine pro and gnosko, it means that God previously chose to love with a special distinguishing love. So when we see the word uh, for new, or for no, it tells us that God set his love on a particular people, a love that distinguishes them from everybody else. A love of intimacy. Special love. As a Christian, he loved you before he created you. He set his love on you. In the divine mind, he knew you were coming because he knew he was going to create you. And he knew when you would be born, and he already determined to love you savingly. Think about that. Wonder if your life means something? The eternal God loved you before you existed. A plan for your life as a Christian. And we have insight in that because the text tells us. He also predestined. Marked us out beforehand, before we were born. Marked you out. Before we were conceived, marked you out. Before the foundation of the earth, marked you out. Predestined. Don't ever be afraid of that word, predestined. I love predestination. It means God predestined every Christian. He marked us out. And you'll notice here in the text, what was it for? To become conformed to the image of his son. Mm. Think about that. Way back before there was anything in the material universe, he marked us out that we might be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll be glorified. Be just like him. Just like him. The bottom of verse um, 30 is the word glorified. The conformed, a conformity in verse 29 is realized in its fullness at the bottom of verse 30 with the word glorified. It's the God the Father. He's involved in our transformation. He initiated it, the divine plan, the eternity past. God the Holy Spirit is involved as well. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. The second person of the Trinity. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18. But we all with unveiled face. It is Christians. We don't have a veil over our face any longer. We see the truth because of salvation. Beholding as in a mirror. The glory of our Lord. Our Lord there is referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
are being presently transformed into the same image from glory to glory. From one level of glory, Christ's glory, his character, his all that he is, we're being made or transformed into his glory, his likeness. Just as from the Lord. And who is the Lord here in this case, doing the transforming work? The Spirit. The Holy Spirit. As we look at Jesus' face in the scripture, the Holy Spirit takes the word of God and he transforms us into the likeness of the Son of God. And we're going from one level of likeness to Christ to the next and to the next and to the next. It's a supernatural work. It's an internal work. It's a divine work. You say, well, what about what about the second person of the Trinity? We've already seen him. You remember? Because in second, uh, this third chapter, verse 12, for which I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Jesus saved Paul, not to just keep him out of hell, but to make him like himself. That's what's going on. So think about this. When we engage in pursuing Christ's likeness, we're aligning ourselves up with God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We have divine enablement to do that, to go after Christ's likeness. And that's what the Holy Spirit, God the Father, and God the Son, that's the Trinity's plan for your life and mine. Think of your Christian life in those terms. So we go after Christ's likeness not only in a relentless pursuit, but it needs to be a focused pursuit. Verse 13 of Philippians 2, a focused pursuit. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. He has not laid hold of Christ's likeness completely. He knows that. Growth in Christ's likeness is a work in progress. Wouldn't you agree? We are not yet what God ultimately intends and will ultimately achieve in us. We're not there yet. If you're not so certain about that, just wait. You'll do something and you'll recognize you just fell short of the glory of God. I'm not there yet, Paul's saying. Again, I think he's taking another side glance at those perfectionists who are thinking they had already arrived. He said, no, 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 no. No, you haven't, and I haven't. Though he hasn't, notice what he says. But one thing I do. I, I haven't reached the goal of the prize of complete Christ-likeness. But he does not lose his passion for the pursuit. He doesn't slacken the pace in the race. He is still running. He says, forgetting what lies behind, let's stop there for a moment. Forgetting doesn't mean he can't recall, because he does. 
He recalls what lies behind in verses 3 through 6 when he was persecuting the church and all the things that he did before salvation. So he remembers. He's got it right in here in the word of God. So he doesn't mean that. And Paul would often talk about the things he did in terms of what he did to the church before his salvation. So he never forgot. Neither did the spiritual victories that he achieved. Churches were established. Souls were won to Christ. Those are positive things. After his salvation, there was still sin, as we saw. It wasn't perfect yet. There were missed opportunities. But Paul left that all behind. Living in the past has been harmful to many Christians. They can't run the race like they need. They can't pursue the prize of Christ's likeness because they're stuck in yesterday. There's bitterness. There are grudges. Tragedies. They let this stuff dominate their mind. Instead of focusing on Christ, they're looking back. What are you looking back there for? Look ahead. I think, I, I think as I watched a, one of those football games yesterday, this athlete was running. Man, he was running. Faster than Grease Lightning. But he looked back. Hmm. He tripped and fell. That's what happens. Too many looking back at what they did to me. What happened yesterday. Uh, nursing grudges and all that. You need to grow up. You can't grow up living in the past. can't put your hand to the plow and look back. Paul said, forget that stuff. Because that's not germane to me becoming what Christ wants me to be. Is it going to help you to be looking back, nursing those things, being crippled by those things? rather than reaching forward, as Paul says in verse 13, to what lies ahead. The word reaching, the word relates to a term, stretching a muscle to its limit. Paul was straining to the finish line. What that tells us is he was focused on Christ's likeness. even as he sat in a rented house in Rome, shackled to a Roman soldier. He's still pressing toward the mark. That's what he says in verse 14. I press on toward the goal of the prize Second time he says, I press on. And you'll notice, too, as you work through this, the first person, personal pronoun, I, 
used seven times. I, I, I. He says, I know what I'm supposed to do. And I'm doing it. Paul does not permit the past, good or bad, to impede his quest for the prize. The word goal here denotes a mark on which to fix one's eyes. The goal was the prize. He's running his race. His eye on the prize of Christ-likeness. You have to do that, brothers and sisters. You have to have the right focus. One way to do that is delineated elsewhere in Scripture, Colossians chapter 3. Verse 1, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. See, you, you can't have your focus down here. At the same time, have your eye on Christ. So he says, it's the upward, the upward call of God. Upward, denoting where it comes from. It's above, it's from heaven. The finish line of the race is heaven. When we're called up, either by death or the rapture of the church, we will be in the glorious, awesome presence of Jesus Christ. Until then, we just keep running. Keep running. Until he says, come home. Keep pressing on the upward way. New heights gaining every day. Keep pressing on. You transform us when Jesus Christ calls us home into his presence. He will transform us instantly into his likeness. First John chapter three, verse two. Somebody, I know somebody saying, well, wait, 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 wait. Um, since Christ is going to do that anyway, why do I spend my time pursuing what he's going to accomplish in an instant? You're asking that question, aren't you? May I give you an answer or two? I knew you would want to know. Number one, because it's obedience. Do what the Lord says do. Another is, it brings glory to God. The more we're like his son in our deportment, in our words, in our character. It displays his character. And that glorifies God. Let men see your good works and therefore glorify whom? Your Father in heaven. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Pursuing Christ-likeness, becoming more like him and more like him and more like him, redounds to God's glory. Sin does not glorify God. When Christians sin, or they have a pattern of sinfulness over time, that doesn't bring honor and glory to God. 
But when your life reflects Christ, your life will be distinct. It'll be different from everybody else's. And they will see that and they say, something different about you. And that'll bring glory to God when they say, oh, you're a Christian. God changes people. Glorifies him. That's why you do it. And you want to glorify him. And when that occurs, when we are called home, we will never ever sin again in thought, word, or deed. In fact, we will not be able to sin. We'll never have to confess our sins again. Never have to repent of our sins again. The struggle of Romans 7 verses 14 through 25 will be over permanently. Never be convicted of sins again. We will be perfect. Like Jesus Christ. And as we're uh, to, as we do that, we will be given when we're in his presence the crown of righteousness. Second Timothy 4, verses 7 through 8. Paul wrote this one song. He was, knew there was a crown of righteousness laid up for him, not only for him, but all those who love our Lord's appearing, he writes. The crown which is righteousness is what he means. We'll have perfect righteousness conferred upon us. We have imputed righteousness now, yes, but we'll have it practically given to us at that moment. We will share in the glory of Christ, 2 Thessalonians 2, 14. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 will be realized. He who began a good work will finish it until the day of Christ. So it's a relentless pursuit. It's a focused pursuit. It's the, a right pursuit. It's a third heading. Verse 15. The word perfect there in verse 15 refers to practical perfection. Paul is being sarcastic. One day we'll be practically perfect. Our life and practice will match our position. Positionally, we are perfect. You say, explain that to me. I said positionally, not practically. Hebrews 10, verse 14, uh, we have perfect standing before God in the righteousness of Christ. We have the uh, reputed righteousness of Christ. So what we're to do is pursue it here. We have the attitude, the right attitude. And if you don't have the right attitude, do understand God will show you. Somebody says, oh, I don't know about all this pursuing Christ's righteousness. Well, God will make it clear to you. He'll reveal it to you. That's what it says at the bottom of the verse. Uh, how will he reveal it to you? Well, he'll open the word of God to you. You'll understand. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's the right attitude I have. I don't think that way. That's right. He'll also chasten you. God will chasten his people who refuse to pursue Christ's likeness. So I would suggest you just go ahead and do it now. 
16 rather, just keep living by the standard to which we have attained. Line up our following lines. Stay in your lane. Be consistent. That's what the apostle is saying. Well, how is this done? I know you want some practical help. How is it accomplished? How to pursue Christ's likeness? Number one, the word of God. The intake of the word of God is essential. You take it in, don't just read it. Apply it. The text that teaches you certain things to do and certain things not to do, obey it. It's where the blessing comes. Second, prayer. You can't be a prayerless Christian and a growing in Christ-likeness Christian. So one of the things you'll note about Jesus in the Gospels, he was a praying person, wasn't he? Wasn't he? You need to commune with God. You need to speak with him according to the word of God as, as prayers laid out, outlined and laid out for how to pray to him. Pray. And don't wait till the times when you're in trouble. It's a song I think you used to say, uh, as long as trouble rises, I'll hasten to his throne. Well, yeah, when trouble rises, hasten to his throne, but don't wait till then. Thirdly, God uses trials to mold believers into the likeness of Christ. He'll bring suffering into our life. You bring difficulties into our life. Did you not know Jesus had suffering and difficulties? Why do you think you're going to get by? He's going to make us like him. Fourth thing, walking in the spirit. Doing the will of God. Fifth thing. Discipline your body. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27. Make it your slave so that it does what God wants it to do. Those are five things. Perhaps there are some others. Those are good ones to start with or to continue in your pursuit. You want to die pursuing Christ. I hope you do. I read the story about a man uh, who was climbing the Swiss Alps. And as he was making the ascent, he died. He didn't get to the top. But at the foot of the mountain, there was a monument to him. And the epitaph on it said, he died climbing. That's what you once said about you. You died climbing, pursuing Christ-likeness. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the word of God. In this new year, help us um, to...
energetically pursue Christ to be like him. May our progress be known to us and to others. May we not be satisfied with the status quo. Give us a holy discontent. He'll see us in every aspect of our being, every aspect of our life, every relationship. We're more like Jesus Christ. That we'll be a little Christ everywhere we are. And you'll be glorified as your people look more like their Savior, your Son. We thank you for the salvation you've given to us. Thank you for delivering us from hell. But we thank you for a greater, greater blessing. The lesson of conformity to Jesus Christ. For all eternity in your presence, like our Lord. In our character. Even our spiritual bodies. And we'll be able to glorify you. Serve you and love you. In ways hitherto unknown. And we bless you for it. In the name of Christ, amen.